You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we are tackling the topic of dental health, and we're going to discern between some common myths and realities. So we are super excited to introduce a very special guest who's joining us today. Before we do, I just have to give a little disclaimer that there's a stomach virus that's running rampant in my household right now. I have two sick kiddos home from school. If you're watching this on YouTube, don't look too carefully. You might see some uh, remnants in my hair from holding their hair back and all kinds of lovely stuff. So if you see that I get up in the middle of recording or anything like that, we're just going to keep the show moving forward. The show must go on. So just wanted to give that little disclaimer up front. All right. Without further ado, um, we'd like to introduce Dr. Ashley Lerman. Dr. Ashley Lerman is a board-certified pediatric dentist and a diplomat of the American Board of Pediatric Dentistry. She completed her education at Columbia University College of Dental Medicine, distinguished as one of only four U.S. dental schools that integrate dental and medical curricula. Her specialty in pediatrics and special needs dentistry was completed at Columbia University, New York Presbyterian, affiliated with Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital. Driven by a desire to enhance oral health and access to preventive education and information, particularly for pregnant women and caregivers, she founded First Grin. This initiative distributes oral care kits via OBGYNs and pediatricians and offers an educational app for parents, promoting early and effective oral health habits, as well as connecting to providers. An active member of the American Academy of Pediatric Dentistry and the American Dental Association, Dr. Lerman is committed to ensuring lasting oral health for families and their children. And the app, should you want to follow along, is First Grin, and the handle is at First Grin, and the website is yourfirstgrin.com, and you can follow uh, Dr. Lerman's personal page at Mommy Pediatric Dentist, and of course, we'll link to all of this in our show notes. Ashley, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. I love what you guys do. I think in a time of social media where a lot of people are getting easy to digest information and misinformation, cutting through the nonsense and bringing forward evidence-based information is really important. Thank you. And um, it's so important as, you know, getting getting families and kids into these healthy habits that are evidence-based, you know, when they're young, because a lot of times we know that what someone learns early in life is what's going to stick with them through through their their whole their whole adulthood as well. Setting an early foundation is correlated with oral health later on in adulthood, too. So much data supports that across the board. And I think we often hear baby teeth don't matter. They're just going to fall out. And we really don't see the aftermath of that until um, we have a lot of consequences. And just as a total aside, I remember back when I was doing my MPH, um, there were folks, I forget where, but I guess there was some trend um, where because this is totally off topic, but I think it's an interesting <laughs> tangent, I guess because of the cost of formula, some people were putting soda in baby bottles and that was leading to um, like bottle rot. And, you know, of course, just the, the sugar causing all kinds of issues and cavities and stuff. And I was just horrified. Um, I, have you have you heard of that? Do you know what I'm talking about, Ashley? Have you yeah, certainly, definitely. We experience it a lot in the hospital setting. It used to be called baby bottle decay. Now it got changed to early childhood caries or severe early childhood caries, depending how many teeth are affected. But yeah, it's sad. We see two-year-olds come in with all 20 of the baby teeth decayed and people just don't know. You know, there's no malintent. Parents tend to want to do the best for their kids. So if we could use our platforms to get that early information out um, through the door for them to practice in tangible ways. That's the number one goal. And something we talk a lot about, right? Prevention is better than treatment or cure, right? It's going to be more cost effective. It's going to lead to less interruption, less pain, less suffering. And so, you know, 
doing the fundamentals before there becomes an issue is is really the best approach. So, you know, let's let's kind of set the stage. So, when we when we look at kids and of course these habits persist into adulthood by age 8, now um over half of children, 52% have had a cavity in their baby teeth. And as, you know, Ashley you you alluded to, um it's not just as simple as oh they're just going to fall out, it's not a problem. There there can be consequences. One in four adults between the ages of 20 and 64 currently have cavities and on average uh, we lose 34 million school hours because of emergency dental issues and um there's estimated to be 45 billion dollars in economic US productivity losses because of dental disease so it's not just oh i have a cavity i have to go get it dealt with it is far reaching consequences and we'll talk more about this in a little bit but it's beyond just your teeth too right the way that your teeth and the architecture of your mouth dental issues can lead to other medical issues so let's start with the basics let's talk brushing how often uh let's talk dentist first how often should we be going to the dentist and when you go to the dentist what's the expectation we often have questions about what's really required and what's you know a price grab absolutely So the guidelines say you should be going every 6 months. The first visit technically for a child should be by 1 year or 6 months within the first tooth erupting. If you have periodontal or gum needs, you may need to go more often for maintenance if you have um, you know, you're required to get deeper cleanings. We could talk about that a little bit later on. In terms of need, it is so patient dependent. We hear all the time, why do I need x-rays? Why do I need fluoride? Um, and there are guidelines based on the individual for radiographs. It depends a lot on the clinical exam. So what we're seeing in the mouth, do we see something suspicious? Can we see in between the teeth? Because X-rays are really a tool to let us see between the teeth, not um, just what we see with our eyes. So I've heard, and I'm sure you get this a lot, like parents who are um, hesitant to have their kids get X-rays done. Can you maybe just touch on that? What would you say to a parent who has that concern? Definitely. I mean, I think with all decisions, especially in pediatrics. Um, you know people question fluoride people question the x-ray so leading with curiosity what the fear is ultimately talking about the risks benefits alternatives leading with the data dental x-rays are extremely extremely safe the radiation is so minuscule going out in the sun you'll have more radiation from that riding in an um, airplane you'll have more radiation than airplane, that riding in an airplane exactly eating a few bananas like um those kinds of things So when you frame it in that way t- people tend to be a little more understanding. But when it comes to x-rays I don't think it's a one size fits all. Like you hear every 6 months you may need to get them. If you're high risk that may be the case. If you're monitoring certain areas for cavities if they're progressing. Um but if you're low risk you don't necessarily need them every 6 months. You can ask your provider about that. But the guidelines are online at the ADA AAPD and you could see them. So let's talk about some special case dental visits before we get into kind of the day-to-day hygiene stuff. So, you know, you said people should be going to the dentist every 6 months now. I will concede that there was a period of time when I did not have dental insurance and I was a very poor graduate student that I was not going as frequently and I'm very fortunate because I compulsively floss and we'll talk about that but I also have pretty good genetics in the fact that I've never had a cavity in my life that I could kind of skate with that even though I knew it wasn't what was recommended um but but oftentimes you know there are people who have specific medical cases um and and something I'm sure that you encounter a lot are questions about can you go to the dentist during pregnancy Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really good question and it obviously brings up the conversation of insurance in our healthcare model. Dental insurance works a little differently than medical insurance. People call it like a glorified coupon and often feel like, you know, the procedures are a money grab. It does work on a fee for service model, so you get paid based on what you do for the most part. Um so, you know, that obviously raises some cynicism in the field. With that being said, um disease does need to be treated cavities are a disease there's a process it can be stopped it needs to be changed so if a filling is done we want to make sure that disease process is stopped otherwise the filling will fail so we want to work on our modifiable factors like flossing is a modifiable factor if you're doing that that's amazing it's helpful another one is fluoride that's modifiable because we have control over it it's obviously extremely contentious across the board public health wise it is 
by the CDC, one of the greatest public health inventions of the 20th um, century because of the widespread reach and lowering cavities. So I think, again, if we're talking based on the individual versus big picture, there are a lot of scopes that um, dentistry can be discussed in. So, so when are there exceptions where, you know, assuming everything else is equal, that, that you wouldn't go to the dentist or maybe you would delay dental appointment? I'm thinking cancer patients or pregnant individuals, things like that. Yeah. So with pregnancy, the safest time generally to go is second trimester. You always want to talk to the OB and get clearance um, among providers. I think that's really important. But dental care and oral care during pregnancy is so important. There have been studies that show um, poor oral health in maternity can lead to poor outcomes with the fetus, such as low birth weight, preeclampsia, these type of things. The mechanism of action is thought to be inflammation. Um, it still needs to be hashed out. And a lot of times data is hard to gather with this population because of fear of, you know, downstream effects. But we want to make sure there's no active infection in our mouth for pregnant individuals. With cancer, again, before starting cancer therapy, if we're going to be immunosuppressed with our immune system compromised, we need to get rid of infection. So we prioritize infections, periodontal or deep gum cleaning if we have disease, um, any source of infection is super, super important to get taken care of prior to starting any type of therapy that we're going to be immunocompromised during. Yeah, it's a great point. So, so let's get into like the, the hygiene section and maybe we can set the stage because we're talking about infection, right? And, and so, you know, this is, this is, you know, loosely people think of cavities, right? And so this, this all comes to play and, you know, I'll kind of microbiology nerd out a little bit my, myself, but, you know, we have bacteria that live in our mouth, right? We have the oral microbiome. Microbiome. It's it's very important, but it can also lead to potential health impacts. And and so one of the bacteria that live in the mouth uh, is Porphyromonas gingivalis, and that is the main bacteria that's responsible for periodontal disease. But there's a lot of different things that that play in there. There's also strept, Streptococcus mutans, which can lead to cavities um, as well. But but essentially, what's happening is that you eat things. The food particles are food for the bacteria in the mouth. They're happy, they're munching on the food, they're reproducing, and they're forming that film, that plaque, that stickiness on your teeth, kind of, you know, when you wake up in the morning, your teeth kind of feel fuzzy, and that clings to your teeth, right? And so you have to eliminate that through oral hygiene practices. Otherwise, those byproducts of the bacteria, acids and other, um, you know, off-gassing can lead to tooth decay. Um, it can lead to tartar formation, which is harder to get off, and then that can lead to um, inflammation in the gums, which is your gingivitis, that can progress into the, the deeper in the gum, and I'll let you kind of do the anatomy portion, but that can lead to periodontitis, which is gum disease, and that can ultimately erode the jaw, the tooth, the bone, and lead to decay. And so it's a very complicated environment that we have to definitely take care of. And, you know, you've got dental caries, cavities um, that are in the tooth itself. And this is all connected into the rest of our circulation, right? People forget that there's that, the nerve and the blood supply in the teeth. And so if you have a breach in that, that can get into the rest of your body. And so let's talk about kind of the, the first kind of top of the list, you know, brushing your teeth. What's, what's best practice? Why do we care so much? I love it. And I love how complex you're making it sound because oftentimes we're just told brush two times a day, throw in some fluoride toothpaste and you'll see where, you know, where the ball lands. Um, and we know that's not the case. So much that's left out of the conversation is diet. And we'll get to that in terms of brushing though, what we can control uh, we ideally want to brush twice a day, morning and night. After nighttime brushing, we ideally want the teeth to be clean, so nothing to eat or drink except water. Flossing once a day. The goal with both brushing and flossing is breaking up that bacterial biofilm. The biofilm starts getting recreated seconds after you brush, um, and that's okay. That's just our mouth. That's an oral microbiome. With bacteria, there's bad bacteria and good bacteria. We just want to make sure we try to keep the bad bacteria at bay. So what about, you know, brushing two times a day? Got it. What about, what about hard brushing versus soft brushing? I remember my late brother, he, 
he looked like he was beating his mouth up. He was so vigorous. And I just remember as a kid, I was two years younger than him, just like staring at him and being like, wow, that's like really intense. So, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions. What's the right type of brushing? What's hard versus soft bristles? You know, you see all these different options at the store. It can be really confusing for people. So what's, what's best practice? Definitely. And I think there's a lot of marketing ploys that go into this too and prey on some fears, but technically with brushing, we should be aiming for a soft bristle brush, um, gently brush it. it, shouldn't be too abrasive. And when we're brushing, we aim to brush, this is very technical, don't go crazy, at a 45 degree angle to the gum line. Basically, alone from just brushing the whites of your teeth, the white hard part, brush along the gum line, both front and back, because it acts as a little pocket where a lot of food, plaque, bacteria like to sit often. And that's also between the teeth. So we want to we wanna brush relatively gently, not too hard, not too soft, ideally soft bristles. What about you know, electric versus manual toothbrushes? We hear a lot of things about that. There's been mixed data on this. Generally, electric toothbrushes people like because it does the work for you. It spins gently. And some of them have sensors where if you're brushing too hard, so that could be interesting. But there is obviously a cost barrier to that. Yeah. If you're brushing properly, a manual toothbrush will be totally fine. And I love every time I go to the dentist, they always give me a new toothbrush. So it also yeah. kind of reminds me, oh, it's time to switch your toothbrush. How often should we be switching our toothbrush? You should be doing it every three to four months, um, just bacterial load on the brushes and they could get frayed and split. And if you don't change them up, you're at risk for abrasion, which is just mechanical wear away on the teeth. That also happens if you're brushing too hard. Mm -hmm. I, I have a question and this is maybe random, but do you, do you know the, the wisps there? Uh, I think they're like disposable toothbrushes they have. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? What do you think about those? Just out of curiosity. I think they're good. I think anything that encourages oral hygiene is good. If right. it's compared to the efficacy of a brush, it's probably not, not as good, but if you're getting something in there, I'm pro that. Yeah. So Got it's it. like better than nothing, especially if you're traveling, but not as good as, you know, the fully loaded package. And, you know, you kind of talked about the changing of the toothbrush and, you know, you alluded to the fraying and the, and the abrasion. And the other thing I think people forget is that, you know, those bristles, they can damage the gum too. Right. And if you get a little wound or a little um, cut on the gum, that can also be a portal of entry for bacteria to enter the, the flesh uh, more readily. And that can also potentially impact oral health. And, and we also, you know, when the fraying occurs, that means that it maybe is not as effective, right? If you're trying to reduce these biofilms, these plaque, if you're brushing with the same intensity and duration, but your brush is really old, maybe you're not getting rid of those bad bacteria as, as well as you thought you might. Um, so let's, let's talk about flossing because it's my favorite topic when it comes to, to teeth. I'm just going to do my elevator pitch. What's the, what's the, what's the brand? Oral B, I don't know. There's a brand, right? Flossing is super underappreciated and it's not given enough love and it's super important. And I would argue, and I'll let you chime in, Ashley, that it's maybe even more important than brushing. But ultimately, flossing is using fiber, you know, typically it's wax, but it's getting in between the nooks and crannies of the teeth. And there's a technique and I'll let you describe all that, but it basically removes plaque and food that might be trapped in between the teeth. And those are places that your toothbrush bristles usually can't get in. So it's easier for them to get trapped and forgotten about. And then your bacteria that are in your mouth are just really happy with this feast that they've been provided. And that, um, that can really facilitate the proliferation and, and ultimately some of those consequences of that back bacteria. So walk us through flossing. How frequently are we supposed to do it? How are you supposed to do it? You know, what are the, what are the, what are the methods? Sure. So we, I think everything you said was perfect right on. I, um, I just think it's underappreciated, underdone. I see all the memes where people are like, when was the last time you flossed when you go to the dentist? And then the person well, for says, me, it was probably there. 10 minutes ago. Cause I floss at yeah. least <laughs> 10 times a day. I love it. So <laughs> you should be flossing wherever teeth touch. A lot of parents come in and ask, when should I start flossing? It's not age dependent. It's completely positional dependent. If your child has two teeth in the bottom coming in for the first time they're touching, you should be flossing. Um, you can use either string floss or a floss picker. String floss, you have more manual dexterity to wrap around the tooth in a C shape. Um, whereas floss picker, a child is going to be you know more compliant with that and let 
the parent do it or do it themselves that way. Or if you aren't able to manipulate the string floss and have some motor Mm -hmm. disability, um, it's a good option too. That is a, that is an excellent point. Now, personally, I love the string floss because I really like wrap it around and I kind of do a little dance with my teeth. Um, and I think it's really interesting because you can always ask your dentist when you go there, right? Like if you, don't know if you're doing it right. Like they can help walk you through how to, how to floss properly. But I love the point that you made where, you know, string floss is the best, but if there's reasons that it's not good for you, there are the other options like the, the floss picks, like my partner, he has the little baggie of the floss picks. He loves those. I just get in there with the string and that that's very satisfying to me. Um, what about, yep. No, I was, no. I was going to ask about bleeding while flossing. Is oh. that like a concern or an indicator of something? Can we chat about that? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I think it's a really good question. And sometimes patients come in and they're concerned. They're like, I avoid cleaning and brushing there if there's bleeding, which is the complete opposite of what we want done. Bleeding tends to be a sign of gingivitis. That's just a fancy word for saying gum or a little swollen. Swollen, yeah. Need <laughs> yeah. Um, they need a little extra help cleaning. So you want to floss and clean there for about two weeks and it should resolve and get better. If it doesn't, I would definitely mention it to a dentist. There are times like, especially hormonally with pregnant women, our gums may be a little more sensitive and bleed a little more. So, um, it is cyclical. There may be hormonal reasons, but for the most part, it tends to be gingivitis, um, and just brush and floss a little better there. So don't (laughs) avoid it, but don't get so aggressive that it's going to be like painful per se. Andrea, did you hear that? Tell yourself that you compulsive flosser. I I don't ever have bleeding gums. My gums are clutch. Um, but, but is there such thing as too much flossing for my own edification? I wouldn't say so. I wouldn't say so. You know, you say ideally once a day for me, it's 10 times a day. I mean, literally if I eat something, I floss and I don't know what everyone who doesn't floss is thinking. Cause it's the most satisfying. I feel so clean and just like, like I had a spa day in my mouth. It's just delightful. But, but what about, you know, say you're doing it once a day and say you're going to do it, you know, at the same time you're brushing, should you floss first? Should you floss after? Is there a difference? There's really not much of a difference as long as you're flossing. I'd call it a day. Um, The data on it is mixed. It's not great. There have been some studies that show flossing before is a little bit better because you get the junk out from between your teeth and then brush it out rather than letting it sit after. So as long as you're doing it, I think it's a win. Well, I want to bring something up because, Ashley, you touched, you mentioned um, hormonal changes maybe during menstruation. What about menopause? Can we chat about that and the ways maybe our our body and oral health changes during menopause? Definitely. I think it's so important to talk about because most people don't know. And to be honest, I don't think many dental schools integrate that in their curriculum. And it's an important conversation to have. I think it goes back to the conversation of the oral microbiome and how hormones play into it. So we do see with menopause, a lot of data showing um, relation with dry mouth, um, grinding, burning in the mouth as well. So there are changes that we're seeing in the oral cavity that we need to consider. And if we're taking medications, they tend to have effects on the mouth too. It could be dry mouth, for example, grinding the teeth. Um, so we always want the full rounded picture to consider the full body, not just the mouth. I I love that point because you, we also, I think it's something we haven't really talked about is that saliva plays a huge role in, you know, either reducing the risk of, or theoretically promoting, um, the development of oral health issues. So Ashley, can you kind of walk us through, you know, the role of saliva in that context and what some of the risk factors might be maybe if you do struggle with dry mouth, either because of medications or just genetics or or things like that. Definitely. So saliva acts like a buffer in the mouth. We always want a good salivary flow rate. So one of the risk factors for cavities is having low salivary flow. Um, There are solutions, especially for an older population, um, like xylitol sucking candies. Xylitol is an antibacterial that could help flow. Um, it just helps fight the acidity that goes on in our mouth. If our mouth is acidic, um, it's more prone to cavities. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so, so for our listeners, think about it as like saliva is helping balance out that environment that's filled with bacteria. And it's also helping dilute the byproducts that the bacteria are making that, um, could theoretically erode the, the teeth and, and cause, um, impacts to your gums. So, 
you know, obviously you don't want to be drooling, but you need a certain amount of saliva to make sure that, you know, the bacteria aren't hanging out stationary because that saliva kind of washes over your teeth and your gums. Um, and it, and it kind of keeps some of that movement going so they can't cling as readily. What about, I don't know if I'm taking a soft topic, but mouthwash. Cause you know, you have me thinking about like moisture in the mouth <laughs> for lack of better phrasing, you know, because yeah. I've seen there, there's some stuff going on on TikTok in particular. Um, like, uh, you know, do you want an alcohol-based mouthwash, non-alcohol, like any tips, tricks, advice you can share? So with mouthwash, again, there's like a, a lot of marketing that goes into it. Um, if the mouthwash makes the mouth acidic, it can actually increase risk of cavities and a lot of alcohol-based ones do. Um, what can be protective is a fluoride-based mouthwash. Um, I would veer away from that topic in general. I don't think it's necessary. There's not enough data, I would say, to fight against. I don't, I don't, I'll just say from what I've seen data-wise, and I did a lot of uh, literature reviews on the oral microbiome many moons ago, but uh, mouthwash is really for freshening your breath. It's not really doing much yeah. for your oral health. And, and I think, you know, the data support flossing, brushing, and fluoride, which maybe we can get into. Um, but I think if, if you're going to sacrifice one of them, I think mouthwash is the one that you don't need to do. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. And I also think we're so often focused on brushing and flossing. Like we need to talk about nutrition, diet, and what we're doing during the day because we could be brushing twice a day with fluoride toothpaste, getting our yearly fluoride application still come in with cavities. So mm -hmm. Are we sipping seltzer throughout the day and not having any water because we're making our mouth acidic during the day um, and could be getting cavities that way? So it's really well-rounded and not just about what we're doing twice a day. Um, yeah, that's a great I point. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So let's let's do fluoride. So I'll set the stage. Fluoride is natural. <laughs> you know I had to do that. Um, but fluoride is 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 found in the environment. It is in rocks and minerals. It is a mineral, and it's released into the environment, the water, the soil, the air. It's as a result, it is found in foods that we eat because they grow in soil and they absorb fluoride from the environment. And we utilize it in, in water in many places, in toothpaste, in other dental treatments, because fluoride helps mineralize and strengthen teeth. Um, and so, Ashley, as you already alluded, it's considered one of the top public health implementations of modern medicine, um, fluoridation. And it is considered, um, we've, we've used it in the U.S. fluoridated drinking water um, for over 75 years. 63% of the U.S. population has access to fluoridated water. And uh, we know that it helps prevent tooth decay. We know that it reduces the likelihood of developing uh, cavities, and and that I think that that proportion is about a twenty five percent reduction. Um, all all other things kind of being held consistent, and unfortunately, it is plagued with misinformation. Um, we've actually done a few posts uh, debunking a lot of the myths and misconceptions about fluoride, but um, but maybe we can walk through some of them after you. Uh, lay, lay out lay out the the pros and the cons for us. Definitely. I think that's a perfect way to approach it. I've appreciated everything you've posted on fluoride. Um, <laughs> it's obviously a very contentious hotbed topic. Um, so fluoride's mechanism of action is remineralizing. Um, the mouth is in a constant state of balance with remineralization, demineralization. So fluoride helps keep, keep us in a remineralized state. With the baby teeth and adult teeth, 
and just brushing um, using a toothpaste with fluoride in it. That's a topical effect that's going to help remineralize the teeth in the mouth. Where there's concern is if we have excess fluoride, it's considered a neurotoxin. And I think that's where people get scared. There's a fear factor. Patients come in, um, you know, very wary. And I think when you see this information on social media, we as practitioners have to be open to the fear and understand why they feel that way and then present the data as well as the risks, benefit alternatives. And then at the end of the day, patients do have autonomy to go for fluoride, go not for fluoride, go for x-rays, go not for x-rays. But, you know, we want to give all the options across the board. Fluoride has been an amazing, amazing feet in the dental public health realm. And I think, you know, when we're talking about, you know, the levels at which you're going to have toxic effects, this is something Jess and I talk about all the time, right? Anything is safe at a certain dose and anything can be harmful at a certain dose, right? And so when you're talking about, you know, the levels with which you may see these, these negative consequences, it's not going to be a, a level with which people are going to realistically ever be exposed to. And that would be from drinking fluoridated water, from eating foods that are grown in soil that contain fluoride, from using fluoridated toothpaste or having fluoride treatments. You know, it's it's almost impossible to have acute toxicity from, you know, water. Um, the, the levels in the U.S. are monitored and managed at 0.7 parts per million. So it's actually quite a low level that you need to have the health benefits of fluoride. Definitely. And there's actually a current case going on in Buffalo, New York, where in 2015, they removed fluoride from the community's waters. And since then, they've seen a slow uptick in caries rate as well. So we do see it cross-sectionally as well, um, the public health effects rebounding from lack of fluoride plus additional fluoride and protecting against cavities. And can we just say flat out, there's absolutely no causal association between fluoride and cancer. This cancer, one really, autism, I, IQ impacts. Yeah, none of those none, sorts of it's things. It's not yeah. accurate. There, there is no evidence of that. Sorry, Ashley, I think you were about to say something. <laughs> No, just oh. backing all of that up 100%. Yeah. None. There's so many oh, confounding yeah. No, no, go ahead. Just the, the, the experiments that were done have so many confounding features <laughs> and conveniently left out when you see, you know, the Instagram post and big letters, fluoride toxicity. Yeah. yeah. So, so let's say we're in this Buffalo neighborhood that removed fluoride from their water and parents want to try and augment the fact that they now don't have access to that. There are options, right? There are fluoride pills, there's drops, there's toothpaste. What, what's the difference and what, what's, what would you recommend? Definitely. So we as pediatric dentists would work alongside the child's pediatrician, but based on the community fluoride level, um, there are supplements. So that would be in the drop or chewable form. What the supplements and chewables help is um, mineralize the teeth that are forming. So the adult teeth or baby teeth that haven't grown in yet. Um, the topical effect of toothpaste is what's going to help the teeth the in the mouth. Teeth. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so for kids, the better option is consuming fluoride because that's going to help the teeth that are up in the jaw that haven't descended. Um, whereas for an adult, it probably would be topical, um, because those would be the teeth that are actually existing or it would, would you see both benefits? Both. So we recommend kids use fluoride toothpaste because the baby teeth in the mouth won't benefit from the drops. Um, and then adults from the, for the most part, adults don't really take fluoride drops. Um, that tends to stop a little bit earlier on. So across the board, fluoride toothpaste is a good thing for the teeth in the mouth. Great. So what it, Oh, Andrea, sorry, okay. were you going to... I was going to ask about hydroxyapatite, am I saying that correctly, which is um, being, you know, presented as an alternative to fluoride. Can you comment on that? You know, how does it compare yeah. and all that good stuff? <laughs> definitely, definitely. It's blown up and again, goes back to marketing, a little bit of greenwashing, playing off the fear and playing up the fear of fluoride, to be honest, into this like naturopathic approach. So hydroxyapatite is a biomimetic ingredient, meaning it's safe to swallow whatever it's found in the body. Based on the studies and data, there is only one study that's really reflected on, and it compares hydroxyapatite to half-strength fluoride, and it shows that it is around the same efficacy. So I think people took that and ran with it's a great alternative. It's not as good as fluoride across the board, but if you don't want to use fluoride for whatever reason, 
it's a good second option, I would say. I still think we're early on in that option, though. So theoretically, it can offer protection. It does participate. It is a part of mineral of bone, um, but it's not as effective. You need a higher dosage of it, and it's 10 times more expensive than fluoride. And so if we're talking about, you know, really great access to something that's been studied for decades and decades and decades, fluoride is an obvious choice. But I, but I suppose, Ashley, in your, in your practice, if someone had the financial resources and they were really averse to fluoride, even after you spoke with them, this, this could be a theoretical um, replacement, but uh, there's just not as much data on this. Exactly. And Ashley, I think something that I see come comes up a lot and sorry, I hear my kids are calling for me, but is it, um, is it fluorosis? Is that right? Or, uh, that people are concerned about, but in reality, my understanding is that it's really not concerning. Is that, I think what leads to some like white spots in your teeth? Am I, is that correct? Can we just chat about that for a second? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Fluorosis is, um, excess ingestion of fluoride. It could present in the teeth as like hyper white, um, milky looking spots. And if, um, it's even more severe than that, it can look a little more brown and mottled. We don't often see that. Um, it tends to mostly be an aesthetic concern, and there are solutions to that if you speak to your dentist. If it does get to the brown modeled stage, it it could leave room for a little bit of um, of decay because it breaks into the tooth. But again, it's it's really really not common. Okay, so we know we need to be going to our dentist ideally every six months. We know we need to be brushing, flossing, using fluoride, and all of this is really to prevent dental disease, right? So let's, let's talk about dental disease. Um, you know, what is dental disease? What are the things that we're really concerned about? Or what are the things that you're looking for when you're doing exams? I know mostly you're dealing with kids, but let's, let's lump adults in there too. Cause there are some things that, that maybe might appear in adulthood, like, like certain oral cancers that you might not see as much with pediatric patients. Definitely. So when we're looking in the mouth, we're obviously looking for decay. We're always looking for dental harmony. Um, You may not be in pain and you may have cavities. That's something we look for on x-rays, small beginnings of cavities to be proactive, preventive. Um, But I think when we're initially looking, we look at your lifestyle, we look at your habits, we look at your brushing style. And ultimately, if there is an area that needs a filling or there is decay, we don't want that to progress deep into the third layer of the tooth or the nerve. Um, that's where it could go into root canal territory. Um, and we could talk a little bit more about root canals. I know apparently there's a lot of lore in that realm as well that I'm just learning. (laughs) There's so much. So, so, you know, let me, let me maybe kind of, uh, start, you know, walking through. So cavity is basically erosion, um, or holes that are forming in the tooth. And it starts with the outside layer, which is that hard enamel. And then it goes into the inner layer, which is the the slightly softer dentin. And then inside that you have like the pulp and that's where you've got your, your nerves and your blood supply and things like that. And so ideally you want to stop that hole from forming before it gets into the meaty bit in the center. Um, which is why presumably you want to go and get your teeth checked out so they can, you know, Know, poke around and make sure there aren't sticky bits or little holes that are forming. And we know that that early cavities, as you mentioned, dental caries is the number one chronic disease of, of children. And so we want to obviously eliminate that, reduce that. Um, but beyond cavities, there, there are those other um, oral health issues, right? Gingivitis, periodontitis, um, abscesses, oral cancer. Um, you know, what are, what are some of the other things that people want to be aware of with regard to, you know, keeping an eye out for signs of some of these other issues, right? We often hear, I think, I remember when I was a kid, it was like, oh, you had an ache in your tooth. But I feel like there might not always be pain. So what are some of the things that, that the everyday person can kind of keep an eye on? Definitely. So with your teeth, you always want to keep an eye out for color changes, any surface changes, any divots, holes, stains, anything brownish, yellowish, unusual. Um, but we should also be looking at the soft tissues in our mouths, like our cheeks, our tongue, the palate, the floor of the mouth for signs of oral cancer. If there are any bumps or spots that are bleeding, anything that's unusual growing, definitely speak to a dentist. If it's caught early, it's something that could be treated with great success. But again, catching it early is so imperative. Yeah. So, so 
I want to talk a little bit about oral cancer, but, but you kind of, you kind of mentioned growths in the mouth and I have to bring it up because I learned about this not that long ago and um, that's dental tori. And so dental tori are bony growths that kind of grow from the jaw and mine are enormous. And I my, too. <laughs> my dentist, I was doing the bite wing x-rays and she couldn't like get it in there cause they're almost touching on the bottom. And she like, Oh, you have really big tori. And I was like, oh, what's that? Tell me more. Um, so, so maybe for other people, because I'm in the science field and I, you know, this was revelatory to me. Um, but for my understanding, they're they're just like bone spurs essentially, and they're they're essentially benign. Um, but 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 Ashley, maybe you can just kind of illuminate this for us. Absolutely. So what tori are, they're just changes in anatomy, either in the palate or in the mandible. Um, they could stick out a little bit. We really don't do anything about them. A time they could be a consideration is if someone needed a denture, we need the denture to sit right, then they'd need to be modified. Um, but most people don't even know they have them until they're pointed out. <laughs> See, I thought everybody had these things sticking into the, the, you know, their soft palate. And I, and I, so then I started asking all these people, can I see your, can I see the inside, uh, lift your tongue. And everybody's like, you're a weirdo, but, um, yeah. Well, it's actually, and I, is this like a new thing that people are, are aware of this? Because I swear it must, I don't know if it was like 10 or 15 years ago, honestly, I'm losing track of time, but I discovered and I pointed it out to a dentist and they had no clue what it was. And they honestly scared the bejesus out of me. And we're like, oh, you have to go for testing and all this and that. And yeah. Okay. Ashley. So maybe That's, not the best yeah. dentist. Is that what that, is that yeah. what that face was? <laughs> a little concerned, but maybe it looked a little concerning. They're being cautious. I'm not sure. She's being so nice. I go on TikTok all the time, much to Andrea's chagrin. And I see every other video is about oil pulling. What mm. is oil pulling and should we be doing it, Ashley? You shouldn't be doing it. It's not rooted in science. I'm just going to be completely blunt. I have no idea how it started. There are so many TikTok trends for the teeth. I had teenage patients coming in who were using a nail file on their no! teeth to make them more. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't do that. There's so much of that using at-home scalers. You could really damage your teeth, bones, gum. Please don't do that. So for people who are not familiar, oil pulling basically means you're swishing oil in your mouth, like, like food, like coconut oil or olive oil. Um, and as Ashley said, there's no science or benefits behind it, but they claim that it replaces brushing and flossing. It whitens your teeth. It removes toxins. It cures oral diseases and it improves your health. And there's no evidence for any of that. Uh, it does not substitute for dental hygiene, and it does not replace going to the dentist. Um, so, so, you know, what about, what about, cause you talked about root canals and we talked about cavities and we know, um, you know, like I said, I've never had a cavity and granted I'm, I'm pretty compulsive about my dental hygiene, but there have been times where I haven't been super proactive because of life. Um, and we know that, it isn't always in our control, right? There are things that are modifiable that you talked about, but there are also other things that can impact your, your quality of your teeth and the likelihood that bacteria can kind of penetrate that outer layer. Um, so can we talk a little bit about this? Cause, cause sometimes we hear like, well, people who get cavities are just lazy about their, their dental health and, and others, you know, maybe they're just really proactive. So what, what's real with this story? Definitely. So it's important, again, to distinguish what we can control, what we can't. A lot of what we can't control has to do with social determinants of health, like our socioeconomic level, our genetics, versus things we can control. So diet, nutrition habits, um, how frequently we're snacking, that's directly correlated to cavities. Um, we just don't want the mouth, again, in that acidic state for long periods of time. A lot of people are talking about the oral microbiome. It's such a buzzword right now again with marketing and gummies and like pills and we just know so little about the oral microbiome so i'm so hesitant to to be pro um yeah any supplement that's yeah. saying it will fix <laughs> we love um, you ashley <laughs> you be realistic like you always want to put on your your critical thinking hat and say like what are these people trying to sell um yeah. and it's such a com complex disease process so we really need to dig into it understand the root root causes there are more than one yeah and and i think you know we know the oral microbiome is important 
but it's not, we don't understand it to the point where you can tweak it. You can't hack it. You can't, you can do the fundamentals. You can make sure that you're equipping your mouth with the tools. It needs to be as healthy as possible. Um, and if you do have a tendency to drink seltzers and sodas, um, like I do, you know, maybe you floss more frequently or you brush more frequently or you rinse out with water or you, you know, you just kind of help facilitate that environment, you know, because you certainly can prevent dental issues if, you know, your hydration, if it's a matter of drinking water, drinking nothing or drinking seltzer for hydration, obviously seltzer is great, but it does have carbonic acid in it because it's carbonated and, you know, a a quick swish of something can ensure that you don't necessarily equip your bacteria in your mouth with something that's going to potentially cause tooth damage. Perfectly said. Um, so I have, and I know we're coming up on time here, but I have to ask about at home teeth whitening kits and like crest, like, I don't know, crest, this is not sponsored, crest white strips. Do you have any, like any thoughts on that? Or do you recommend that people do or don't do it? So it's so patient dependent. Um, there are benefits to doing at home versus in office In office might be a little stronger. You have the material to protect the gums if you are using whitening materials, but you also have to manage expectations because I think a lot of things with whitening, especially with social media, we're having patients come in with unrealistic expectations of what white teeth actually are. Wait, you mean Um, people are using filters to make their teeth look whiter in a picture? 100%, 100%. And just have to be completely clear about that. Teeth, the second layer of the tooth, the dentin, is a little yellow naturally. And the outer layer, enamel, which is translucent, um, is going to show a little bit of that. So if you do want to modify cosmetically, absolutely up to you. Speak to your dentist about it, but also have realistic expectations coming out of it as well. Have, have you seen this? Um, it's like a purple toothpaste. It's all over TikTok now. I guess they're saying something about the purple weighs out or washes out the yellow on our teeth. And so it makes our teeth appear more white. If you don't know what I'm, someone who's listening knows what I'm talking about, but forget it. Ashley, if you don't know what I'm talking about. I mean, it almost <laughs> sounds like tinting. Yeah. Like art theory, color theory. Yeah. I understand the logic behind it. That's definitely not rooted in science, yeah. but I like the effort on the marketing team to go there. (laughs) Um, Okay. Before we wrap up, let's talk about root canals and some of the misinformation about uh, root canals and fillings and things like that. Yes. I think that's a really meaty topic. Um, I delved into the research as well. So what a root canal is, it's when either a cavity or trauma gets to the nerve of the tooth and it's compromised. So what happens is you clean out the nerve of the tooth, you put some medicine on. As with any procedure, dentally, if you do a filling, a crown, et cetera, it has a risk of failing. So a root canal can fail. So a question that came up is, is it better to just remove the tooth? That depends on a million factors. We're always looking, again, for dental harmony, what's best for that patient. Um, Sometimes it's better to remove the tooth. Sometimes it's better to maintain that tooth structure. But one's not better than the other. A root canal is not linked to Alzheimer's, chronic Lyme, all of these kind of outrageous claims when I was going into this and reading about and doing, you know, wide database searches on the journals out there. Um, Yeah, it's wild, right? And and the other thing is is there's a lot of people in the wellness space um, where they promote, you know, all these unproven treatments like uh, urotherapy and ozone and all that. And another thing is um, the removal of dental amalgam, right? People are telling people to remove their fillings, their silver fillings that may have a little bit of mercury in them. Um, and I want to just say, no, those fillings are not causing health impacts. Please don't get your fillings removed, but Ashley, maybe you can elaborate on that a little bit. Definitely. So dental amalgam are just those silver fillings that we're used to seeing. It's not very much used anymore because of aesthetics. Um, people were concerned about the mercury content in it. Um, there is no data to substantiate that. Um, I think the only thing that's come out of it is when you're removing amalgam fillings, you want to be careful of how that's done. And they're always scavenging systems in dental offices to make sure that's done safely. 
Yeah. So essentially, you know, you don't need to go have your civil silver fillings removed. That's more misinformation. Um, they're not causing health impacts. And that was kind of linked to the Alzheimer's myth and the heavy metal and all of that. The, the amount of mercury that's added to that is simply for, um, texturing and things like that, but it's not at a level where that exposure is going to cause any human harm. And they've done like long-term studies on this as well. We'll, we'll add some in the, in the show notes and there are potential risks. If you go to get it removed and replaced with something else, right? Aside from mechanical damage to the tooth itself during removal, but you're, you know, you're removing something that was protecting a breach in the tooth, right? So there's potential for infection or abscess or other complications as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. If someone wanted to remove it for like a white filling per se, it would, my guess would be an aesthetic concern, which is valid, but it shouldn't be rooted in the idea that it's going to cause any type of bodily harm. So Ashley, I'm chuckling over here because my kids just handed me an Easter egg filled with candy, in particular (laughs) Skittles, um, which is probably your nightmare. Don't worry, I will have them brush um, (laughs) in just a little bit with fluoride toothpaste. But, you know, as we wrap up, are there any final thoughts that you want to leave the audience with? Yeah, I think I'm so passionate about preventive care from the start. Um, One thing I think that is so important to mention is between ages six and eight, we have a mix of baby and adult teeth. If we have unhealthy baby teeth in the environment of healthy adult teeth, we're putting them at risk. So we're really starting this cycle so, so early. Take control of that early preventive care. Don't just focus on the brushing and flossing. Of course, do them, but focus on the diet, um, nutrition as well. Lots of water. Um, making sure you're staying healthy, well-balanced meals, those type of things. It really is the full body and the mouth is the start of the digestive system and it should be approached that way as well. Yeah, that's a, it's a great, great point to wrap up on. And, you know, we didn't even get into the potential cardiovascular impacts of dental disease. So maybe we'll do a part two on dental and oral health in the future. But um, Ashley, thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, I feel like oral health is really, you know, the redheaded stepchild of medicine. And, and in part, that's, that's, partly because of the way our medical healthcare structure is. But um, I, I want people to be excited about taking care of their mouths and appreciate all of the, you know, important factors that we can actually do to ensure that we equip it with all the things it needs. And thank you so much for all the work you're doing to improve access to preventive health for oral health and for kids and for pregnant women. And um, once again, you can find Ashley at Mommy Pediatric Dentist and First Grin is at First Grin. The website is yourfirstgrin.com. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, Ashley. Um, And thank you to our listeners. We hope you learned a thing or two. And if you want to support our efforts, uh, please consider supporting us. We have a newsletter um, on Substack. It's theunbiasedsipod.substack.com. We have our biweekly newsletter and periodic long-form posts there. We also have some fun science-themed snarky merch on our our website, um, as well as all of our databases, our past episodes, you can find that at www.unbiasedscipod. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channels and our social channels. The handle is at unbiasedscipod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist.